Morning, Christ Bible Church. Morning. morning, those who join us online. Hi, Mom. Hi, Chris. Great to have everybody here this morning. My name is Chuck Oldman. I'm a pastor here at Christ Bible Church, and it's my privilege this morning to bring us God's Word. At CBC, we desire to be a church of fully devoted followers of Jesus, of disciples who invest our lives in others in making other disciples. One element in that process is the preaching of God's Word, which I'll undertake here in a, in a minute. And as we grow in Christ-likeness, we want to then naturally engage our world in ways that bring glory to God. Uh, so preach the Word, be disciples who make disciples, and engage our world. That's who we want to be. That's who we try to be as a church. We usually have big banners up here that say that. They're getting rehabbed post-renovation, but uh, they'll be up soon. But I just want to remind you of who we want to be as a church. You know, turbulence occurs along seams of change. Uh, cold fronts colliding with warm fronts produce wind, rain, snow, sleet, hail, tornadoes, all manner of unsettling atmospheric activity. Flying at or near the edge of the jet stream where two air masses are uh, adjacent to each other, traveling at very different speeds, can result in a very bumpy ride, which many of you have probably experienced. Nations and countries, as we have witnessed, can experience similar turbulence during the, the change of regimes. And we'll see today, uh, we'll continue to see in today's text, our, that our experience in seeing that has a historical precedent as we witness the turbulence surrounding the leadership baton change in Israel from David to his son Solomon. But before we dive into the text, I want to spend just a little bit of time uh, orienting us in the story. We haven't spent much time of late in the Old Testament. The last several months we worked through Ephesians and then Second Peter and then Jude uh, and a lot of us aren't that familiar with the Old Testament uh, anyway, so I thought it would be helpful to, to take a little bit of time up front here and position us as we move forward in the story. The whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament together, actually tell one story. It's the grand narrative of God's plan for all of creation. Of all the many grand narratives that we humans piece together to try to explain who we are, where we came from, why we're here, uh, where we're going... The Bible's meta-narrative is the one true story that actually answers all of those questions. So what is that grand story? Well, I like to think of it as a six-act play, and I'll use the timeline here to uh, help us hopefully fit those things together. So Act 1, if I could have the first slide, please. Uh, Act 1, God created everything, and it was good, and actually the pinnacle of creation was mankind, us, and God declared that to be very good. And that was... Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, right around here, Adam somewhere. Genesis 3 is Act 2, uh, where creation rebels against its God, and that's Genesis 3 again. Act 3, amazingly enough, God decides to put together a plan to redeem his rebellious creatures. That begins in Genesis 3, and then continues the whole way through the Old Testament up until the birth of Christ. So this whole Old Testament piece is the story of God's plan for redeeming uh, mankind. Act 4 is how that plan is then executed. It's the uh, deliverance on that promise. Uh, God redeemed mankind. That part of the story is in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the fifth act is where God engages the world through the church. That's us. Uh, God commissioned us, the church, as his agents in redemption and the spreading of the gospel, the good news, and the growing of his kingdom. And that takes place in the book of Acts through uh, about the book of Jude. And finally, uh, he will come again to make things right, to make all things right. And that when he returns, he will return in glory, and that story is told largely in the book of Revelation. Uh, 
So a key part of God's redemptive plan, this Act 3 that we're in now, was God's desire to give his people, uh, the Israelites, a king that would rule with justice and mercy and would care for his people. That whole story is contained in the book of Samuel's book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, all divided into two in our Bible today. And so I wanted to to see where that fits as well. If I could have the next slide. So this is where we are in that piece. So here's Samuel, Kings, and we'll look at Chronicles here in a second. But all of those tell the story about this kingship thing. First Samuel is the question, uh, who is going to be king? That question is eventually answered in the person of David. Uh, Second Samuel answers the question, what's this king going to be like? Who Who is this guy and what's he like? And then First and Second Kings begins, which is where we are now, begins the story of that kingship as it sort of unwinds. It uh, it's, walks us through the various ups and downs, mostly downs, of what living like a king other than God is like. And Second King ends with the, the southern kingdom's exile into Babylon, which uh, right here on the slide. And uh, Chronicles covers much of that same territory, if we could look at the next slide, but it looks at it slightly differently. So as, first, as Samuel and Kings together tell the big story, Chronicles has a, a larger scope, but in some ways it's also a more focused approach. So it starts with the, all these genealogies in the front end, which if you've read Chronicles, you, those are pretty voluminous. And, but he goes with Adam and starts to tell the whole story of what's going on, what God is doing in the deliver, deliverance of this uh, kingdom. And then it also looks at it from a very southern kingdom perspective, whereas Kings goes back and forth from north and south after the kingdom split. Uh, Chronicles is very much southern kingdom focused and very much uh, from a priestly perspective. So lots of rules on who should sing and when and where people should stand and all those things. But it still tells the same basic story. Uh, next slide, please. So, so the, that's the big picture. Uh, today, the book we're studying, First Kings, is a part of that story. Uh, it's the unfolding of the promise of redemption, which lands us right in that time frame, which we're just at the very beginning of. Uh, and, but basically, the goal this morning is to understand who God is and what he's doing and how we're supposed to respond so that we can be better equipped to engage our world and become the kind of people that can bear fruit for the glory of God. So last week, we saw the beginnings of this transition in, this, in the kingship with a weakened David, King David, who finally sprang into action, declaring Solomon to be king in response to Adonijah's attempt to usurp the throne. Our text today continues that storyline and contains basically two major parts. Uh, First, David's deathbed charge to his uh, son and now King Solomon. And then secondly, Solomon's response to that charge. We'll read all of David's final instructions to Solomon, and then we'll read selectively uh, from the second part. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week with uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. If you follow along with me. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, 
you also know that Joab, the son of Zerai, did to me, and how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadites, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day that I, when I went to Manaheim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Verse 10, then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being the God that would reveal yourself to us in this way, in the written word. And Father, we pray that you would take this word uh, and you would inform our minds with it, Lord, that as, as a result of our time this morning, we would understand better in our minds who you are. But Lord, I pray more importantly that you would shape our heart with it, that we would not just understand, but that we would know you intimately and, and that you would shape our hearts, help us to love what you love, help us to, to live the lives you've called us to live in ways that look more and more like you, Lord, that we might be fruitful for your glory and for our good. Lord, only you can do that in our midst, Lord, and I pray that you please do that this morning in us. We commit this time to you, and it's in your, in your name we pray. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, as we look at this passage this morning, we'll look at this from basically three different perspectives. First, we'll look at it from David's perspective, which is largely a looking backwards sort of approach to things. Then we'll look at it from Solomon's perspective, which is looking forward and then we'll look at it from God's perspective. So uh, David's perspective first. As we just read, this chapter opens uh, with David's final words to his son, and who is now the king, and his advice comes to David with two major emphases. First, on his relationship with God, David's and, and hence Solomon's relationship with God, what that should be moving forward. And then also, secondly, uh, some remaining people slash kingdom issues that he'd like Solomon to deal with. Verse 2 contains kind of the overarching guidance that, uh, that David gives Solomon in this piece. He says, be strong and show yourself to be a man. This is very similar in structure, actually, and in wording to Joshua's uh, command that was given to him by God after Moses' death as he was preparing to lead the people into the promised land. Uh, David, uh, and following this broad thing that David says, how to be a man, he tells him in detail how to do that uh, in the in the part that follows. He begins in the beginning with God, and this is what it, part of what it means to be a man. And he, he tells Solomon in verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord. Uh, this is a Hebrew saying. It's used just a handful of times in the Old Testament. It's, it's a shorthand for God's commandments must be kept. These are the things that God 
commands that you must keep. It's further articulated and illustrated by what follows after that in this passage. Walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. This is language right out of the Mosaic Covenant, right out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, God says, if you follow me, if you are faithful to me, you will be blessed. If you are not faithful to me, things will not go well. So be faithful to me. Choose life. This Deuteronomic lens that he's looking at this whole thing through, uh, then the author is creating a bar that he's going to use to measure all the kings in 1 Kings and 2 Kings as he evaluates how the kingships are going. This is the bar he's going to use. He's going to use this this view from Deuteronomy that this this requirement to be faithful to God. So th- this uh, David's charge to his son Solomon in this place is the same as God's charge to his people. The author of Kings, looking back on uh, from the Babylonian exile, as Randy talked about last week, is that is now using this bar to evaluate what went wrong. Okay, we're in exile. Something happened. How did this go? And then so they look at this thing through these Deuteronomy glasses and say, okay. We should be faithful to God. We should not worship other gods. And so that that becomes then the bar. And you'll see that over and over again, that whether they were a good king or a bad king is based on that. And again, uh, these are are the dying words, the dying king's last words uh, to his son, so to his heir, Solomon. He says, Solomon, it starts here. Walk in his ways. If you do that, then two things will happen. First, you'll prosper. Uh, And we'll look at that in a second here to see what that means in more detail. But secondly, David is saying this, my legacy will be continued. My legacy will be established. And he he makes that clear at the tail end of verse 4 by telling Solomon what God had told him. He says, if your sons, which now is Solomon that he's talking to, so if your sons pay close attention to all their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So basically, if you remain faithful to God, Solomon, then you will ensure my legacy and there will be a, someone from our family on the throne forever. Great promise. This is actually the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to David uh, back in 2 Samuel 7. So that's what's going on here. Since uh, this section contains David's final words to his son, they carry an immense weight uh, because of that. And David begins these most important words with the most important point. He says, Solomon, you must do this. You must obey God. You must walk in his ways. If you don't do anything else I tell you, do this one thing. After kind of closing that out, David then moves on to the second emphasis, to the second category of instructions, some cleanup items that he'd like him to take care of after he goes. Uh, So David and Solomon are co-regents that... Solomon was made king, if you remember, last week at the end of chapter 1. So David's still alive, so, he, so they're kind of sharing this kingship. Some commentators think this lasted uh, from maybe six months up to a couple years. But in any case, in the midst of this, there are some things that David wants uh, Solomon to do, but he wants him to do it after he's gone. So this is uh, David's kingly to-do list, if you would. And it deals primarily with three uh, persons slash groups of people. Joab, the sons of Barzillai, and Shimei. So those are the three things he's going to walk us through here. Um, in an effort, to, and each of these has a backstory that uh, if, you, if you were with us in Samuel, 
a couple of years ago when we did First and Second Samuel, you might remember those backstories, but I'll try to do this concisely so you can understand exactly why this matters to David. I'll be looking at where these things intersect David's life and his reign. So I've put together a chart that, uh, if we could have that up, that, that'll help us sort of bring this together. I don't have maps today. I have a time map to kind of map this out sort of so we can hopefully visualize what's going on here. The general chart stuff, so this is the 40 years that is uh, King David's reign. Uh, Saul is on this side. He reigns 40 years over here. Solomon's on this side. He reigns 40 years over here. David's in the middle, and this is where we are in the story. So uh, this is the seven years he spent in Hebron in the, as king of Judah in the divided kingdom, and then he went to Jerusalem and served 33 years here. So uh, the, the first up as we walk through this chart is the, on his list of things to do is Joab. Now, Joab and David have a long history. Um, Joab is actually David's nephew. He's the son of one of uh, David's sisters, and uh, he's also the brother of Asahel. So uh, he's also off and on again the head of the army for David, uh, mostly on, sometimes uh, not, but Joab is clearly a mixed bag, if you remember from Samuel. Sometimes he does David's dirty work. For example, the Uriah the Hittite, uh, who was the wife of Bathsheba, who David had killed. Uh, the guy who executed that whole plan was Joab. Uh, as we, as we um, will discuss here briefly, he, he's also the, the one who killed against David's direct orders, killed David's son Absalom. So he's not always like doing exactly what the king wants him to. And he generally appears to do things that are in his best interest. Uh, surprise, surprise. And he's also, uh, along with that, he also does things very much that are good for Judah, for the southern part of the nation, not so much what's good for the whole country. So very Judah-focused and uh, very personal-focused. So the two incidents that David mentions as he lays out why he wants these things done to Joab are uh, listed on the map here. First is this whole piece over here where Joab murders Abner. And he murders Abner because Abner had killed Joab's brother, Asahel, as a part of the civil war that occurred here. So uh, the, basically, Abner decides he wants to be with David at the end of that. He comes over to David's side, and then Joab kills him. So that's strike one. The murder of Amasa, who's also David's uh, nephew, the son of a different sister David had. So that makes him also Joab's cousin, which just muddies the water even more. Uh, Amasa had, had actually supported Absalom here. He was Absalom's military guy during Absalom's insurrection. And then uh, when Absalom was killed, he joined David, and David actually made him the, the head of the army. Joab didn't like that either, so Joab killed him. So that was strike two. Not mentioned in this text, but I think also something that weighed heavily on David was the fact that, as I, as I already uh, said, Joab killed um, Absalom, David's son. And that, that was, he, he said, whatever you do, do not kill him. And Joab went out and killed him. So, uh, and David held that against him and was all part of how that played out. But I think that weighed heavily on David. So strike three. Next up in this list, so that's Joab. Next up is this guy, uh, Barzillai, who had uh, basically shown David great kindness. When David fled Jerusalem 
when Absalom came in and tried to uh, take over the throne and actually did for a while, David fled and, and this guy, uh, Barzillai, took care of him, took, showed him great kindness and generosity to David and his family. So David says, take care of his sons, be good to them. And the third one on the list is this, uh, is this man, Shimei. He was previously a devoted follower of Saul, so he's a Benjaminite, which Saul was as well, uh, from that tribe. And he's the guy that, if you remember the story, he cursed David vehemently as David was fleeing Jerusalem, fleeing Absalom. Um, and David spared his life then. And then later, when David came back into power, Shemia tried to come back in. Shimei tried to come back and, and uh, make right with him and reconcile the relationship. And that's where David said, as he alluded to in the text we read, I promised I wouldn't kill him. And uh, I guess technically you could say that he honored his word. <laughs> although things don't end well for Shimei. Um, so that was the third man on the list. And I would, I would offer that the intersection of these three people, uh, Joab, Barzillai, and Shimei, all occur most recently in this whole Absalom insurrection. So uh, during that coup. And this was one of the most difficult times in David's life, probably marked him deeply as both his, in his life and his reign as king, and so this is very impactful. And it's hard to say for certain, but uh, to me, the fact that these three men are on this to-do list that David's giving Solomon, this wasn't about securing the kingdom's borders. This wasn't about making uh, the world safe for Israel. This was very personal for David. So the first section then that we read ends with David's death, the end of one king's reign and the beginning of another. Verse 12 says, So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So this idea of a, the establishment of a kingdom is the key takeaway from this whole chapter. It's uh, the Hebrew word that is used there for establishment is used four times in this chapter. The first time in 12, which begins the bookend, and then he uses it again in chapters uh, once each in verses 45 and 46 at the very end of the chapter, and also in 24, which is in the middle. So this is a repeated theme throughout the book, this idea of the kingdom being established in this chapter. Um, and the word actually carries this idea of an authenticating, um, an authenticating something as valid as having legitimate authority, uh, a focus on durability, lastingness of the solution. So the idea here is this throne that Solomon is now seated on, this throne is valid, it's secure, it's legitimate, it's durable, it's lasting. But what exactly established this throne in this way for Solomon? Well, it's not his actions because he, he hasn't done these things yet. He's just heard the charge from his dad. Uh, and the word established is in the past tense. So it's not saying if you do these things, you'll be established. That's not it at all. The establishment comes from uh, verse 4 where uh, David alludes to the fact, he said, it is the Lord establishing his word. So God declared it, again, back to 2 Samuel 7, and then God did it. So, uh, again, the promise fulfilled. So that closes David's reign, and now on to Solomon. But unlike David looking back, Solomon's look is much more uh, to the future, to the forward. So as we uh, begin this portion, the conflict in chapter 1 begins uh, much like the conflict here. They both start with this, with Adonijah. In chapter 1, as you remember from uh, Randy's uh, taking us through it last week, David was stirred to action by uh, Adonijah declaring himself to be king. 
That's what made David stand up and say, no, 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 Solomon's going to be king. And that started that whole sequence of events. Uh, Solomon's actions in this passage were likewise triggered by uh, Adonijah's plot and plan. And remember, as a backdrop to this whole vignette, that Adonijah is Solomon's brother. So these are our two brothers, and Solomon has no doubt watched his dad, King David, uh, over the years deal with or actually fail to deal with his sons. Think about Amnon, which we haven't talked about, but that was the oldest son who did bad things and was killed. And then uh, Absalom, who we've already addressed, who rebelled against his dad and was killed. And now Adonijah. Uh, And we heard last week from Randy about how he wasn't, you know, his dad gave him everything he wanted as well. So there's not a lot of uh, help coming here from David. Uh, So, and and Solomon had watched all that. So as the story begins to unfold here, uh, Adonijah comes to Bathsheba, to David's uh, wife and Solomon's mother with this request. And the, and the request, the, the, first he sets it up in verse 15. He says, he, Adonijah, uh, said, you know, you, Bathsheba, Bathsheba, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers, for it was his from the Lord. Just a couple observations. First of all, I think that possibly Adonijah is prone to overstatement here, a little uh, all Israel fully expected me to be king. I think we already saw how that worked. And that was, is not true at all. I mean, he was just trying to make his case as best he could. Uh, and then secondly, he acknowledged that this was God's doing. He said it was his from the Lord. So it's one thing to kind of want to be king and have those aspirations and to kind of push the, the system to do that. It's another thing to know that God wants someone else to be king. And for you, for in this case, for Adonijah to to defy him in that way. That's a little scarier territory. Verse 17, so that was the setup for the ask. Here's the ask in verse 17. He, Adonijah, said to Bathsheba, please ask King Solomon, your son, he will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Hmm. This is a really interesting request. If you remember from last week, Abishag was this beautiful woman who they were trying to... uh, give David some help with, and so her relationship in that mix was very unclear, but regardless of all that, this is basically Adonijah saying, please give me the dead king's maiden for my wife. So we're not really clear what his motive was, it's not clear in the text, but regardless, this is a very bold appeal. And for reasons that aren't exactly clear, Bathsheba agrees to the task, to to taking this uh, request to her son. There's a couple reasons that she could do that. At at face, you go, why would she do that? But I think one possibility is she's naive and she's unaware that uh, the implications of this request, you know, that if he's with this woman that was with him, then that, you know, more push to be king. So that's one possibility that she's naive. A second possibility is that she knows exactly what she's doing and that she knows if she takes this request to her son, the result will be the death of Adonijah. Based on her, how she has operated to date, I would opt for B. I think that she knows exactly what she's doing here. So Bathsheba takes this request to her son in verse 22. And King Solomon responds in this way in verse 22. He says, King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you ask for Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him for the kingdom also. 
For he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. So his, for, for, this is a moment of clarity for Solomon. He, he sees exactly, if you remember at the end of 1 Kings 1, Adonijah clinging to the horns in the temple saying, please, please don't kill me. And, uh, and Solomon graciously says, okay, if you don't do anything bad, I'll let you live. But if you do something bad, all bets are off. Well, here he is playing his hand, if you would. Uh, so the, Solomon gets clarity there that, that Adonijah is unrepentant and is, is still vying for the throne. Further, along with Adonijah, the other coup plotters must also be dealt with. So, so this includes Adonijah, and then Solomon goes on to say, oh, there's Abiathar and Joab as well. So the rest of this chapter is about Solomon dealing with those men in the order that they're laid out there. Adonijah, his brother, first. Abiathar, the priest, second. And then finally, his cousin, uh, Joab. So first, Adonijah, uh, verse 24. Solomon says, Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So Solomon reaches back, makes it clear that his actions are based on the fact that God has established his kingdom, and he's on the kingdom of the throne, his father, who, by the way, is also Adonijah's father. But regardless, I'm here because God put me here, um, and so go kill him. So then Solomon sent uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. One down, two to go. Next up, Abiathar the priest, verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king Solomon said, Go to Anatoth and to your state, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carry the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's afflictions. So verse 27, Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So Abiathar isn't killed, but is removed from power. He's out of the, out of the circle of influence. And this actually fulfills a prophecy in 1 Samuel 2 that uh, David references there, or that the author references there. So last, so two down, one to go. The last of the coup team, and the, actually this is the first on, the, on his father's list of things to do, uh, it's a convenient overlap for Solomon, is uh, Joab. And Joab got the word that Adonijah and Abiathar had already uh, been dealt with, and so he knew that his time was coming. He tried the grabbing on the horns of the altar uh, trick that uh, Adonijah had done, but to no avail. You know, the, the shedding of innocent blood was forbidden at the altar, but that did not describe Joab at all. Then in verses 31 through 33, Solomon tries to couch this execution on moral grounds. He claims he's cleansing his father's name, his father David's name, from the shedding of innocent blood. And there's a certain irony here, unstated, that uh, because Joab has also, was also the one that engineered the death of another innocent man, Uriah. And he did that at the behest of King David. So here we are clearing David's name, when in fact David had blood on his hands in that way already. So again, it's... Uh, the author's trying to take the moral high ground here, but, but I think it's a lot uh, shadier than that, a lot murkier than that. So now that, uh, then, so verse 34, then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death as he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Um, so that's the, the uh, 
done with Joab, the first one on David's list. And now the major coup participants are dealt with. Uh, Solomon puts his team in place to actually run the kingdom. So he replaces Joab with uh, uh, the guy who's been doing his deeds here, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he replaces uh, Abiathar the priest with Zadok. So now his administration's in place, and the government can move forward. Uh, but there's still one piece left here, this guy, uh, Shimei. It's the last on his father's list, and, uh, and Solomon actually fulfills his father's command and deals with him in a very creative, uh, wise way, you could argue. Uh, Solomon establishes the rules for this relationship with uh, Shimei, and, and he actually literally sets the boundaries in verses 36 and 37. He says, then, then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there to any other place whatever. For the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know that for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. So Shimei agrees the deal. He said it probably is as good as it's going to get. And then and this sounds like it happens all condensed because it's, you know, it's just a couple verses at the end of the chapter. But this actually happens over a three-year period. Eventually, uh, he has some servants that escape. They go to Gath, and uh, he goes and gets them, comes back. Everybody finds out, or at least Solomon finds out and has them executed. Um, that's verse 46. Then the, kingdom, then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. That's how the chapter ends. Solomon is now king. The kingdom is established, at least for the time being. Stay tuned. Uh, so that's Solomon's perspective looking forward, dealing with those things that his dad gave him to do. The last perspective is to look not backward or forward, but to look heartward. Uh, what are we to make of this? Uh, how, what can we glean from this? How are we supposed to live after knowing how this story goes? And there's lots of things you could pull out of this, but I'm just going to uh, take three. Uh, first, God tells us how to live, and his way is best. This is verse three, God's command to David that he passed on to Solomon. It's also true for us today. Walk in his way. The result of keeping the charge of God in this way, of walking in his ways, of keeping his, his statutes, his testimony, his, uh, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, is that, according to this text, we will prosper. Now, the sense of the word translated proper is bigger than just money. It carries the idea of cause to make progress, to succeed, to build up, to excel, to flourish. Is there an area in your life where you're struggling, where you're not making progress, where you're stuck? The text says, and God says to us, walk in his ways, walk in my ways. Walk in his word, walk in his spirit, walk with his people as we are this morning. Is there an area that God has clearly revealed for us how we're to live? I would argue there's many areas like that. How are, how are we supposed to love? What's that look like? How are we supposed to forgive? Who are we supposed to forgive? What are you, what's your mind supposed to dwell on? The admonition is walk in his ways. So is there someone out there that you know you need to forgive, but you don't want to do it? They don't deserve it. Uh, walk in his way. Do his bidding. Is there someone you need to share the gospel with? Our, the call on our life as followers of Jesus is to proclaim the good news to the world. And 
Is there someone on your heart that you know you should do it with, but you're reluctant to do that? God says, walk in my way. Walk in this way. Bottom line, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are a citizen in a kingdom. And that kingdom has a king. And that king is not you. And it's not me. Walk in his ways. Another area we can make application is in how we trust God or the kind of trust we have in God. I'm not quite sure what the best way to articulate this is, but here's the idea I'm trying to express, trying to get across. When David was a young man, he had a very bold faith. Think uh, Goliath. Think how he approached that whole situation, and this was not about him. This was about God. You have, you know, you've taken the name of the Lord our God and thrown it down on the ground, and, and that's wrong. So very bold in his faith. Uh, think of the opportunities David had in this whole uh, thing we saw in Samuel. You know, he was anointed king and then for over 10 years chased by Saul and hiding in caves and doing all that. And at least two occasions recorded in Samuel had the opportunity to hurry along God's plan to make him king by taking uh, Saul out. And David said, I can't do that. I will wait on God. God is king. I will wait for him to do it in his time. And we saw it again today, the, uh, 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 looking at how David lived and l- listened to the psalms that he, had, he penned in some of the times, that, especially the, the older times when he was, and, and some probably more recently, but when things were good and things were bad, psalms that cry out to God to make things right, to, to seek God as the ultimate protector, as his ultimate refuge. He had a bold faith, especially as a young man. In contrast, in in today's passage, we see some of that in David, but we also see a much more measured faith, David, where he needs Solomon to take care of some of this unfinished business because he can't leave God to do that. Uh, It's hard to know hearts and motives in all this, but David appears to be less inclined in his later life to, to trust God for big things. And to be honest, this is one area that's a, that's a struggle for me. Having spent four years at a military academy and then almost 25 years in the Air Force, another 18 years in commercial aviation, uh, I was used to a, a fairly structured environment, and that would be an understatement. I generally knew how things worked, and I, I knew at least how they were supposed to work, and I knew if they didn't work, they gave you this checklist of stuff you're supposed to do to try to make things right. So it's a you know, very uh, structured environment in that way. But walking with God is not like that at all. God is not like that. He's big. He's powerful. He is awesome. So that, that measured faith piece, that, again, pray for me there, but uh, uh, I want to be more and more a man that lives by bold faith. How about you? Would you say that you're living uh, your faith in a measured way or that you're living your faith boldly? What are you doing right now that you cannot do without God? Where, if he doesn't show up in what you're undertaking, uh, where will you fail if God doesn't show up to, to do it? Trust God. Trust him in that way. Live a bold life of faith. Finally, final takeaway from this passage is that he is absolutely sovereign over all things. What he says, he will do. He can be trusted. Examples from today's passage, uh, Abiathar's removal from the priesthood, uh, which we'd already touched on, was uh, prophesied earlier, and then it was done. 
the whole terrible mess we've looked at today uh, was foretold to God, from God to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You know, all of this bloody mess, this inner family squabbles between cousins and sons and brothers, uh, that was all the result of David's sin. David was told by God, because you have despised me, God, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, the sword shall never depart from your house. Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah, all sons of the king, all killed by the sword. The sword had not departed from David's house. God's word is sure. And finally, the establishment of Solomon's throne, which again, the core piece of the passage today, the core idea of this chapter. God said it, and now we, we have seen it come to fruition. What he says will come to pass. And God uses the, uh, all manner of things, our sinfulness, the brokenness of the world that we live in, uh, in ways that he sees fit in order to accomplish his purposes. And because this is true, and I would argue this, that because of God's sovereignty in all of these areas, this is deeply true, we look forward, we look forward to the day of his return when all the broken things, including me, including you, all of us, will be made whole. He said he's coming back. He does what he says. He will return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we again just pray that you would shape us and mold us and make us like you through the power of your spirit and the, the use of your word in our lives. Lord, help us to walk in your way, to be fully devoted followers of you for your glory and for our good. And Lord, give us a bold faith, a faith that is not lived at, the measured, at our measured pace, but Lord, that is lived at your uh, full throttle pace, according to your greatness, according to your power. Lord, make us like that. And Lord, thank you that you are in control of all things. Please use us and empower us to live our lives for others, for your purposes, uh, and not for our own. Lord, do all this, please, for your glory and for our good. For it's in your most holy and precious name we pray. Amen.